0: In the previous episode, we have established that the traditional Chinese economy lacked fiscal and state capacity. In this episode, we will trace the results of this lack of fiscal and state capacity uh, throughout the late Qing as well as the war and interwar period up until the 19. 49 founding of the PRC and this builds on Brandt, Ma and Dvorsky's exposition of this theme. They start with the second Qing dynasty Emperor Kangxi 1662 to 1722 and provided as a example as a prominent example to underline the degree to which the state, the administration was unable to uh, carry out its essential functions. And uh, Kangxi wanted to carry out a cadastral survey, that is a real estate land survey, but due to resistance by the gentry elite, that is the landed elite, uh, the Real estate survey was unable to be carried out and instead of that new survey in older outdated Ming dynasty land registry was used. And in addition uh, Kangxi decided to permanently fix the tax on land in perpetuity. A second example is Yongzheng, seventeen twenty-two to thirty-five, who was the successor of Kangxi, who attempted to involve informal taxation that existed at the time into the formal tax basis in order to reduce the leakage of resources as well as minimize corruption. However, again, there was resistance by certain elements of the economy, in this case resistance by local administrators and officials and magistrates that were benefiting from the system of weak state capacity. These uh, local or regional magistrates uh, would be able to cream off informally taxed resources for their own benefit and Brandt, Ma and Roski are suggesting this is partly due to using information asymmetries about the size of those revenues for their own personal private advantage. Now following these two examples we can continue to talk about how the lack of state capacity was also evinced by other types of symptoms of domestic as well as external weakness in terms of domestic weakness, one can cite the white lotus rebellion seventeen ninety six to eighteen o four and then more prominently the first opium war nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty two which concluded with the Unequal Treaty of Nanking in 1842. And this set off a series of so-called unequal treaties, which established the treaty port system, which allowed for certain foreigners the establishment of trading posts. And Brandma Roski and others are suggesting that. This treaty port system was allowing for a duty-free importation of certain equipment for mining, as well as land-intensive products and coal, and therefore, braun Ma, and Roski suggest, quote, the insertion of a treaty port economy in the traditional Chinese empire represented initially what seemed like a small rupture to a giant closed political system that would only grow over time to tear at the foundation of traditional china's long-run political equilibrium unquote and the other examples that are highlighting the internal and external weakness then further shed light on this more and more unstable uh, system of the traditional chinese economy the if you like other example is the Taiping Rebellion, 1850 to 1864, where there was a lot of human casualty as well as destruction and obliteration of land and capital. And the foreign powers supported the Qing government uh, against the uprising, but also regional leaders uh, with uh, the highest uh, level civil service exam certifications were also striving to prop up the Qing state. In the words of Brandt, Ma and "quote the dynamic regime demonstrated a capacity not only to withstand shocks, but also to restore stability in the wake of potentially destabilizing disasters. The devastating Taiping rebellion which exposed the weakness of Qing rulers, was suppressed by regional leaders who possessed the highest level civil service examination degrees. These men mobilized troops and funds in their home provinces and defeated the rebel armies. The victorious generals, all of whom were Han Chinese, then restored control to the throne even though it was occupied by the non-Chinese descendants. So, in other words, Uh, this is another example of how certain other types of elites, and this time certain uh, managerial as well as intellectual elites, were in a sense the buffer against uh, radical change in the traditional Chinese economy even after it was forcibly opened up uh, via the First Opium War. Subsequently, um, with these changes, there were some effects on the tax system in China in the pre modern era, and this includes the Li Qin or the Li Jin tax on internal trade uh, that would be the source of funds for the efforts to resist the Taiping rebellion. And second, the foreign administered imperial maritime customs that put new taxes on sea international travel, international trade, seaborne international trade. And the result of this was that the tax of internal trade and external trade would reduce the relative share of land as a revenue source up from around 75%, which we have seen in the previous episode, down to 35% of officially recorded public revenue. In other words, the changes that China was undergoing through at that time were resulting in changes in taxation, including the rise of commercial taxation and this was accompanied by a decentralization along the fiscal dimension as well as the political dimension. Now a further example to the resistance to change uh, of this high-level equilibrium trap that the Chinese economy exhibited was the Tongzhu restoration which was based on reviving the Confucian tradition but uh, also attempted th- to adopt the Western technology as well as uh, military techniques. In the words of Brandt, Ma and Grosky these local elites quote contributed prominently to the Tongzhi restoration 1861-75 a joint Manchu Chinese effort to restore stability and prosperity by revitalizing orthodox Confucian ideology, reconstructing the traditional low-tax fiscal regime and restoring regular civil service examinations." And all of this if you like put together suggests that there was huge resistance to change but nonetheless there were some real economic changes that took place gradually. And this includes the treaty port system substantially reducing Chinese tariffs to a really low level of 5%. And then Brand Ma and Rowski are quoting statistics suggesting that exports rose by 20%, imports rose by 80%. Of course, it is easy for these numbers to rise given their relatively low base. Uh, between 1817 and 1895. Nonetheless, there is some evidence uh, suggesting that the domestic prices for commodities in China started to converge to a level equivalent to the international market prices, which suggests some form of integration with the commodities traded in the global market. And there were in addition, next to trade expanding and goods arriving as well as leaving China, also new ideas, new technologies arriving as well via the treaty port system. Brandma and Roski then continue to focus on the late Qing from 1840 to 96 1896 Uh, further quoting additional examples suggesting how the traditional Chinese economy had these institutional features of a lack of vision entrenched interests, patronage uh, economy and so on that produced a lot of resistance to change including in the late Qing resistance to expansion of uh, railway networks transport networks including inland steam shipping and other forms of public infrastructure as well as feel like adoption of new business practices arrangements technologies uh, as well as the processing of agricultural commodities including soy beans and silk and Brand Ma and Roski are suggesting that these problems, if you like, the resistance to change, was in contrast to the Meiji Restoration, which steamrolled through a lot of changes uh, very quickly. In cross- contrast, in China, there were a lot of conflicts, which quote arose when new ventures clashed with vested interests arising from restrictive coalitions of merchants who arranged informal trade monopolies by promising to deliver tax payments to official patrons Unquote. and then they further continue to point out the so-called merchant official combines being used to force down Parts of the economy that wanted to change but would threaten the profits of merchants as well as, as, well as official revenues. And Brandma and Roski are suggesting that when there were complaints from, for example, merchant clients, the administrators or officials um, either quote intervened directly or empowered incumbent merchants and their agents to act as official deputies in restricting entry unquote. in other words it is suggested here that the state capacity was very limited and the state essentially was captured by private interests certain private interests both in terms of the landed gentry as well as the the merchants and the guilds that were resisting change. There are further examples of this case including Jardine Mason uh, wanting to try to establish a steam-powered silk processing plant near Shanghai and couldn't get to have the cocoons necessary for that silk processing to be safely and efficiently delivered and stored in the proximity outside of the Shanghai Treaty port and the second example is Tianjin where guilds in transport the transport sector restricted mobility and changes in that area as well as uh, Shantou guilds and all of these um, have been hypothesized by Aichi Motono in his book from the year 2000 that emphasized this link or this nexus between merchants, that is business interests, as well as officials, that is some representatives of the state that were the structural foundation of the uh, traditional Chinese merchant groups and networks that allowed on the one hand the Chinese economy to achieve a lot of fluidity, flexibility, as well as allowed it to function and have operational markets as well as commerce but at the same time was holding back the radical change that seemed to be needed um, in Uh, pre-modern China at that time. Motono, in his book uh, in 2000, he suggested that the entry of the West into China had a, a big effect because it established a new source of power and authority in China, which eroded the monopoly of political control and violence that was previously held by the imperial household. And at the same time, it also undermined the mercantile guild's authority and therefore threatened the previous combines or the nexus between the private business interests as well as the local administration's and official's interests, and therefore, paved the way for a change that would come in the 20th century. Now, aside from Motono, there's some other scholars in economic history, such as Taney and Murphy, and uh, colleagues, that disagree with this hypothesis. And they, in contrast, suggest that the treaty port system and the entry of the West did have deleterious effects but nonetheless on the total Chinese economy and any political economy power dynamics had little effect. Be that as it may, the further movement of uh, history uh, during that time would produce new shocks that would uh, eventually produce very unmistakable Changes in the Chinese economy, and this and one of these was the first uh, Sino Japanese War in 1895. While Japan itself was subject to foreign invasion, it responded much earlier and arguably was able to better respond to the external pressure via its Meiji Restoration. and In the end in 1895 the Sino-Japanese War took place, which then ended with the 1896 Treaty of Shimonoseki. And this Treaty of Shimonoseki S-H-I-M-O-N-O-S-E-K-I, according to Brun, Ma, and Roski, was significant because, quote, it granted foreigners the right to establish factories, that is, manufacturing, in the treaty ports, thus leading to a rapid expansion of FDI, whereas prior to the Treaty of Shimonoseki, foreign business in the treaty ports were restricted to commerce or trading only, unquote. It suggests that the Treaty of Shimonoseku was a further opening up, whereas the Treaty of Nanking in 1842 led to a treaty port system which established trading and now also direct manufacturing uh, was granted or possible via foreign firms and subsequently the if you like chinese economy and society underwent a lot of internal struggle strife and change which we do not have uh, time to go into and they are not in any case the focus of uh, this aspect of economic history there was the defeat of china by japan that was followed by the 100 days reform movement and the dao Dowager uh, Empress Cixi plotted then to counter that movement and did a coup d'etat to oust the Emperor as well as Cixi's, uh, um, if you like partial condolence for um, the Boxer Rebellion and that was then triggering the Eight Nations Alliance that put a Boxer Protocol another one of these unequal treaties to uh, be imposed on China. And subsequently with the defeat of China in the Sino-Japanese War, uh, there, according to Brandt, Ma, and Rorsky, seems to be a greater uh, acceptance Mm -hmm. as well as understanding for fundamental radical change in China. And Again, the contrast with the Japanese experience is uh, insightful. The Meiji reform in Japan took place much earlier and it involved a radical land reform where 10% of land ended up in the hands of the state. And there was then state-sponsored plans for industrialization, transfer of technology, improvements in human capital, as well as training of manpower and so on. And in China, these modernization and industrialization uh, big push uh, plans or strategies didn't exist on a wide scale. There were some exceptions, but these exceptions prove the rule, including the China merchant steam navigation and shipping company being founded, the Wuhan Steel Mill shanghai shipyards and weapon armories uh, being set up and making great advances but these were pockets but not widespread generalized changes in the chinese economy and its industrial structure or the lack thereof As we have mentioned in the previous episode the traditional Chinese economy was characterized by political centralization and power being quite uh, unified and over time this unification though crumbled with the start of the 19th century. Previously we have looked at the tax on internal trade, the Li Qin or the Li Jin, as well as the tax on seaborne international travel leading to a rise in commercial taxation that was associated with a decline in taxation on land. And commercial taxation then had the side effect of leading to a decentralization and fragmentation of fiscal and political authority inside of China and partly this was due to the need to fund certain regional uh, initiatives and uh, military activities to overthrow or confront uh, domestic uh, rebellions. In 1911, the Qing Dynasty fell and in 1912 the Republic of China was founded and the period from 1912 to 1937 is referred to as the so-called interwar period. And in this interwar period the decentralization of fiscal and political authority continued and it was also associated with secession along provincial lines as well as regional war lordism as well as military regimes. In other words the structure of the traditional Chinese economy started to uh, crumble and disintegrate where uh, political power was no longer held firmly at the center. At the same time in this interwar period there were some changes in the structure of the Chinese economy which nonetheless uh, were having little effect on fundamentally changing agriculture, let alone leading to fundamental widespread technological progress in the Chinese economy. And nonetheless these changes in the Chinese economy in the interwar period typically are neglected but I think they can be considered to be certain seeds as well as certain endowments for the Chinese economy following 1949. Brandt, Ma and Rorsky, um enumerate these various changes in the interwar uh, Chinese economy, and this is including industrialization, or at least the certain certain infant steps being taken uh, in terms of industrialization. Brand, Ma and Rosky, as well as Norton, they look at two types of industrialization. First the treaty port industrialization, where there is a focus on light consumer goods that are being produced and the value added of these is very low, so they're at the lower end of the value chain. And the Chinese-owned firms uh, contributed to around 80% of factory output. So there was a lot of domestic ownership of these firms that contributed to industrialization. And at the same time there were also spillovers, knowledge spillovers and possible productivity increases and linkages resulting from the treaty port industrialization to other local industries. On the other hand, you had the northeast type of industrialization, which was driven by Japan, and Japan developed infrastructure, including railroad road networks, in order to essentially take and grab the natural resources it lacked, including coal and iron, iron ore, that were being used for heavy industry in Japan, partly for certain war efforts. And Brandt, Ma and Roski are suggesting, quote, measures were discouraged from subcontracting with small Chinese firms and skilled positions within the industry were intentionally reserved for Japanese nationals, unquote, suggesting that the industrialization that took place in the northeast of China did have little effect on spillovers or human capital, if you like, learning by doing uh, in the northeast next to industry there were also changes in trade in the interwar period uh, the trade in the 1920s of uh, china rose to more than two percent of global trade flows uh, a level that was only regained in the 1990s that is several decades later and more than 70 decades later so trade grew Also investment rose. Uh, The share of uh, total FDI uh, received by China was amounting to around 8% of all uh, total FDI stock worldwide. Next to foreign direct investment, domestic investment also rose. Fixed investment was even higher at 8% compared with Japan during the 1903-36 to period. Then there were transport developments. There was the first steps towards a railway railway network being built partly because of the need to extract resources um, by the Japanese, establish coal mining and so on. And this eventually would however also lead to lower energy costs because the coal was also being used domestically and it could establish Uh, new industries and uh, lead to new usages including cement, textiles, flowers, cigarettes, matches, chemicals and so on. It also had some secondary effect, the transport development that is, on the intensification of commercialization of agriculture. And Next to this, uh, next to the railroad network, there was also the telegraph network that was being built. And then, ultimately, uh, the changes in the financial system were also dawning. Uh, while the traditional or pre-modern uh, banking system or monetary system in China was composed, as we have looked at previously, of a mix of uh, copper cash, coins, silver bullion and so on, as well as private Paper notes, they were replaced by minted silver dollars, and also banknotes were being used. So, there was some kind of standardization of the monetary system, as well as a move towards a fiat money system eventually, as well as the rise of stock exchanges, insurance, and trust companies, and the issuance of public debt. Nonetheless, the rural economy in China was still marked by extremely high income inequality. Tendency of land was still widespread, uh, rents were very high, the farmers were not owning the land in most of the times, and there was a lot of widespread poverty and debt uh, in the rural economy in China. And this, if you like, puts the picture in context of what the interwar economy looked like in China prior to the war uh, with Japan that was part of the, if you like, Eastern theater of the Second World War and the uh, Civil War uh, ensuing subsequently. and. The Japanese invasion uh, of China uh, is also referred to as the Second, second Japanese uh, Sino or Japanese-Chinese war and sometimes is dated from 1931 uh, to 49 or 1937 to 1949 and these wartime changes had a a very important effect, uh, both in terms of taking further the changes in the uh, Chinese economy that were being accelerated by uh, the situation of war. And one is Japan-controlled northeast China grew further in importance, while previously the coastal cities, including uh, Shanghai, were the dominant economic center for industrial production Uh, that moved to the northeast. And that was, if you like, further uh, strengthened when um, Japan-occupied Manchuria produced essentially more than half of uh, Chinese industrial output value by 1942. At the same time, you had increased state intervention and Brandt, Ma and Roski forcefully point out what was the endowment of this, if you like, uh, end, uh, painful end to the, uh, what is sometimes referred to as the so-called century of humiliation um, in China, Uh, that would be the backdrop of the changes that would take place in 1949. So Brandtma and Roski are suggesting that quote prior to the second world war there had been no significant public sector in chinese industry unquote and they go on to state that during the war the national government retreated into the chinese interior and setting up a temporary capital in Chongqing in Sichuan province and they also created a national resource commission NRC that was initially focused on mineral development and naturally uh, due to the nature of uh, it being focused on mineral development, it was staffed by uh, different types of engineers. And this later would be the front-runner of certain developmental and lead agencies uh, in the Chinese economy uh, following the foundation of the People's Republic of China. And to provide some statistics, what kind of economy uh, the I like, the new managers of uh, the Chinese economy were endowed with uh, at the start of 1949. Brand Ma and Rosky are quoting the following very important statistics: State-run firms uh, at the end of this uh, period until the end of the Second World War and the end of the Sino-Japanese War or Japanese-Sino War, uh, state-run firms employ 70% of capital and one-third of labor in unoccupied China in the early 1940s. So more than two-thirds of capital and one-third of labor is being controlled by state-run firms. 90% of output in steel is being controlled by state-run firms two-thirds of electricity close to 50 percent of cement output and banks transportation networks are government controlled in this war uh, economy and the backdrop at the same time was also that there was huge destruction and disruption of economic infrastructure and the economy severe inflation and a huge decline Uh, of the Chinese economy relative to the rest of the world. While uh, Chinese GDP was um, somewhat uh, close to uh, the global average in uh, 1700s, that is uh, around 250 years earlier, uh, it declined to less than uh, 40% in 1913 and less than 20% by the start of 1949 and this if you like provides the backdrop for uh, the economy prior to 1949 uh, all the way from the Song dynasty up until the end of the second world war and if you like to conclude one can suggest that the external threats, war and civil war, uh, all led to the centralization of power that paved the way for the conditions of the emergence of a developmental state with the start of the People's Republic of China. So it is suggested that in this general and very wide sweep of uh, economic history, the institutions that were holding back China from achieving and immediately adopting a developmental state approach to reform and development following the Industrial Revolution in Britain and Western Europe was not possible until those traditional institutions and entrenched elite interests patronage economy, limited state capacity, limited fiscal capacity were broken uh, partly by the accumulation of many internal as well as external shocks and the result was a huge control um, of the state of the economy um, at the um, start of the 1940s which endowed uh, the PRC with conditions that could make it amenable for adopting a big push and a development state approach to uh, initiating the foundations of modern economic growth following 1949.